Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Even if the name Rodin isn't immediately familiar, you may know his iconic sculpture, The Thinker. Atlanta's High Museum of Art will soon open the exhibition Rodin in the United States, confronting the modern. Rodin's path to acceptance in the U.S. was complicated. Later in the program, curator Claudia Einicke will tell us more about the show, which reveals how Rodin's work looks beyond the conventional to examine and embrace the modern. First... If you've driven through streets of Atlanta, especially during hot weather, you may have seen young African-American boys selling water bottles or soft drinks along the medians. They're known as the water boys or bottle boys. The practice is somewhat controversial and has received a lot of media attention in recent years, notably during the height of the pandemic. Atlanta filmmaker and rapper Sensei Chop has created a documentary about the water boy culture in our city, Thirst Trap, is streaming now on Amazon Prime and Tubi. Sensei Chop joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm eager to hear more about your film. Why do these children and adolescents sell water bottles and soft drinks on the streets? Well, um... One thing that I realized is kind of, well, at the time it was hard for a lot of these young guys to get, not necessarily get jobs, but to get the jobs that provided the type of money that would make sense for their living situation. A lot of these, unfortunately, a lot of these kids, they'll be like somewhere in between the ages of eight and 17, and they are breadwinners for their home. They're in a single family home. And they're not trying to turn anything illegal because they might have older relatives or other people in the neighborhoods where they see, okay, if they went to selling drugs or went to robbing people, this is what happened to them. This is what happened to their life. So they don't want to go that route. So to them, that's the best way for them to make the most 
amount of money legally, not realizing that there's other steps you need to take to be able to actually do it legal, but it's not selling drugs. Right. In the film, you speak with Tez and Josh, the entrepreneurs of Diggum Snacks, LLC. How does their water selling business differ from that of the other water boy? Well, I've been seeing Tez and Josh around since like 2016. And one thing I've always noticed about them is they just were super professional with their setup. They were super clean. I would be riding by, I would see them taking time to actually set up their display and everything before they just go out there and sell water. And when they're done, I actually catch them cleaning up, which I don't see any other water boys do this. They're not running up to cars. They're not being reckless. Like they'll, they'll wave the, the bottles of water. If you want it, you'll buy it. And if you don't, they'll just keep it moving. There's no pressure. There's no argument. It's no trying to convince them you to make a purchase. And I, I really appreciated that. Yes, it, it seems that Tess and Josh see themselves more as entrepreneurs. Yeah, they do. Actually, they don't like to be called water boys because they say that this is just a hustle that they're doing right right now. They got other things going on, like Ted sells clothes and Josh Epson with that as well. So they don't want to just be labeled as water boys, but this is their, currently their bread and butter right now. And they make they make a lot of money doing it. Huh. You bring out in the film that this is a better alternative to other hustles. But there's also some danger involved for the children as well as the drivers. Would you tell us more about that? Yeah, so it's a lot of kids that are just extremely reckless, especially after COVID. I think the first couple of months within Atlanta during COVID when we didn't know what was going on and the kids couldn't go to school and they're just being left in the house when they were finally able to go out. They were just just full of energy and just full of life. So a lot of them just couldn't take no for an answer. A lot of them would just run up to cars, snatch what they can out the cars. Definitely not the proper way to do it. But it made a lot of drivers uneasy. Some drivers actually got shot or assaulted by the water boys. I remember one time a woman got punched in the face, her purse snatched, and when she got out to chase them to get her purse back, another water boy jumped in her car and drove off and crashed it. So it's it's, it's a lot of water boys out there that that are causing issues and problems with the um, citizens. And how did law enforcement react? Well, originally, law enforcement on um, Keisha Lance Baldwin, when she was married at the time, she was putting in something in place to have the police officers um, keep the water boys off the street. And that just never went through. So it's kind of like a hit and a miss with law enforcement. Sometimes they'll say something to them. Sometimes they don't because they don't want the backlash. Like I said, this was during COVID. And if you remember during COVID, we had a lot of like racial issues happening, George Floyd. It's, uh, it was just a lot of racial tension at the time. So a lot of police, with these water boys being majority black, a lot of police just didn't want to create any issues or have any spotlight drawn on them. Mm, tragedy all around. Right. So 
What legal tactics have passed? Where is the city of Atlanta in terms of trying to shut down this business? Well, actually, the city of Atlanta, they, the main thing they're doing right now is just really asking citizens just not to support the water board. There's nothing legally that they're actually doing right now. There was a, a mayor candidate, Antonio Brown, who was running, and he said if he won, he wanted to create some water bottling facilities for these water boys to work in. But the issue with that, a lot of these water boys like Tess and Josh, it's not that they're looking for a job, they're entrepreneurs. So you trying to give them a job and probably paying them less than what they're making right now is not going to work. It's not going to make sense. And there's a lot of people who are giving inputs and opinions on what needs to be done or not even necessarily giving inputs and opinions on what needs to be done, but they're just really saying like it needs to stop. They don't need to do this. They don't need to do that. But a, a lot of people are not offering solutions that will um, help these water boys to continue to make the money that they're making right now. And also not letting the drivers feel so pressured into buying something or not feeling safe. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Sensei Chop. We're discussing his new documentary about the Atlanta Water Boys, Thirst Trap. You were very young. Well, you were a 12-year-old boy when you started rapping under the name Poke Chop. How did you come up with that name? Well, I actually didn't come up with that name. I have an older brother. He's like eight years older than me. His, His real name was Doug. And it was a cartoon out when I was like seven called Doug that came on Nickelodeon. And Doug had an older sister, but he had a dog named Porkchop. And right. I just always used to follow my brother around. I, I never really played with kids my age. I used to be with my brother and his friends. And one of his friends just stalked on me Porkchop one day. He said, you just like that little dog that followed Doug around in that cartoon. <laughs> so that's where that name came from. And when did you decide to change it to Sensei Chop? Um, well, actually, that, that's another name that was given to me, Sensei, but I made that change somewhere like around 2014. Just grew out of Poke Chop. It was a childhood thing. It was, a, you know, a nickname. I kept the chop, dropped the poke, added Sensei. And what is the story behind Sensei? Well, with my friends, I've always been the one to help people out, give good advice, teach people things, because I, I read a lot. You know, within my community, there's not a lot of people that read a lot or expand their minds. So I tend to know more than a lot of those around me at the time. And I would help them out with all kinds of things, like helping them get their credit together or helping them with legitimation, um, like single fathers, helping them getting their kids legitimized so they can have rights with their kids and not be in a situation where they're saying the kids, mama won't let them see the child. So I will come with this knowledge and resources for people, and they just start calling me sensei. Hmm. This is your first major film project. Sensei, when did you become interested in storytelling? I've always been interested in storytelling since since I was probably like six or seven. And actually, when I first got into music, that's what got me into music mainly, just the art of storytelling. And at the time, with the resources I had, 
that was the best thing that I could use to tell stories of my, my voice. So when I got into film, I originally was, was just doing branding content for a lot of companies and businesses. But that was just, you know, it's a job. It's just to pay the bills. It's nothing fulfilling in that for me, really. I wanted to tell stories my way. I see a lot of film out there. And a lot of times we're like in a time period right now where a lot of things that's coming out are like remakes or something might not make make any sense. It's just out there for shock value. And I'm like, it's, it's not any good stories out there. I have to go to YouTube actually just to hear a good story. But the things that's like out there on the mainstream media, a lot of it's like real watered down or cliche for the most part. So instead of me complaining about it, I said, I, I can do this. I can, I can tell a story and I can tell a good story. And from the credits, it looks like you wore many hats creating this film. It, it seems like you handled just about every aspect of production. Tell us about directing photography and narration and editing. You took on many roles here. I took on so many roles. In my next film, I'm not taking that many roles. <laughs> I, I didn't know. It was my first film. I, I had no idea what all it would take to actually make the film. I just said, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to try something and I'm going to learn as I go. So it was an extreme learning process. I started, I actually started the film in 2020, the towards the end of 2020. And literally the first day of shooting, I got my car stole. Oh. My mom went missing for a whole week. Me and my sister had no idea where my mom was. Oh my God. And I'm dealing with all this in the midst of me trying to put a documentary together. And my brother got locked up. It was just a lot of things that were happening in that time period on top of me trying to learn how to be a filmmaker because in my mind, I'm thinking I have a camera, I can get it done. And I'm, I really wasn't thinking about the whole legal aspect of it as well, or the fact that when you're making something like a documentary, when you're trying to convey certain emotions to the audience, you have to experience those emotions yourself in editing so it can feel real and authentic. And just the mental toll that takes on you and not realizing like, wow, this is a lot. Like for example, Mika Pless, Jelani's mom, to listen to her part over and over and go through all the footage. And, you know, it's a heartbreaking story. And I have to relive that on a constant basis over and over again while I'm editing. I'm like, nah, I have to get somebody else to help me with, st with stuff like this. And then when it got to the music part, I'm actually rapping on the main song, but the actual score of the documentary I had to get a whole producer team to make everything from scratch because the music that I was using, the company told me they wanted like $10,000 for it. I'm like, I didn't even spend that much to make the film. I don't, don't want to spend $10,000 on the music. So I had to strip off all the music and get everything made from scratch. So yeah, it was a lot. It sounds like it. Wow. Hey. 
Let play numbers. I got a bad on it. I got a bad vibe too. She can add on it. Got a way make a lame hit. It's sad on it. Got foreigns, got whips that got cats on them. I shoot for a living. I'm the Mandalorian. A drug dealer's dream clean, dope boy persona. But I'm the sensei. See, I pay the roll runners. Catching out my cash out, bumping no hundreds. The new one's on the way. I lost another old friend just the other day. Rest in peace. Thought we gon' celebrate. No, we gon' find your killers. Hunt them down and get them straight. About to make me miss my dinner date. Bloodstains all on my bus down. I ain't have a car. I used to chase the bus down. Now that Rolly say, you ain't got to rush now. Cool it. So, Sensei, why was it important to you that this aspect of Atlanta culture be the subject of your first major film? It was important to me because during that time, there were a lot of people posting memes and stories and even news clips about the water boy culture in Atlanta. And for the most part, it was just all just super negative. It was just showing the wild, reckless behavior. It was showing basically the ignorance of it. And with me being around it for as long as I've been around it, I'm like, no, it's deeper than that. It's more to it than that. There are actual professionals who are doing this. And on top of that, there are water boys that lost their lives by other water boys in the midst of it is literally like a drug story minus the drugs. And I want the world to see that because most of the world don't even know anything about the waterboard culture, let alone how deep it really is. And a lot of Atlanta um, residents don't know about it as well. I get a lot of feedback for the film from people who live within the city. And most of them say the same thing. Like we didn't know it was that deep. We just thought it was just a whole bunch of wild kids running up the cars trying to charge $5, $10 for a bottle of water. We didn't know it got that extreme because a lot of people only show just the ignorance and the negative part of it. I'm like, yeah, it, it's a, a real business for a lot of these people. And it's some kids who actually lost their lives out there trying to make a living for their family. So I want to tell that story, show the world, because I, I, I feel like it was unique. I, I feel like other people would feel the same way. Sensei Chop. Atlanta filmmaker and rapper. His new documentary, Thirst Trap, is available to stream on Amazon Prime, Tubi, and other streaming platforms. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, Rodin Sculpture, The Thinker, and numerous other Rodin masterpieces soon will come to the High Museum. We'll catch up with the curator, Claudia Einecke. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. 
Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. The iconic sculpture, The Thinker, may well be one of the most recognizable works of art in history. But its creator, Auguste Rodin, was received with decades of ambivalence by American art critics until well into the 20th century. The sculptor's body of work, Rodin in the United States, confronting the modern, will be on view at the High Museum from October 21st through January 15th. High Museum curator Claudia Einicke joins me now via Zoom to talk more about the Rodin exhibition. Claudia, welcome back to City Light. Hello, Louis. It's uh, always a pleasure to speak with you and your listeners. So thank you for having me on. Oh, my pleasure as well. What distinguished Rodin's work as such a bold departure from traditional sculpture? There are several, well, easily recognizable elements in that he really pushed against and went beyond sort of the the traditional understanding of of what a sculpture is, how it should look, what materials should be used. And for me, the most interesting and exciting step that he took is that he would take a complete human figure, his sculpture is figurative, uh, and remain figurative throughout his career. And he might take a human figure and well, this sounds gruesome, dismember it. I mean, the sculpture, of course. Um, Take it apart. Um, You might have a figure of St. John the Baptist preaching in the desert, and he would just take the head off and maybe the arms as well and would just be left with a sculpture that is a torso with legs, and it would still contain and express completely the emotion and the dynamism and the energy of the original figure. So we have these truncated and abbreviated figures which still contain the full power of expression and physical presence that you would have in a traditional full figure. Hmm. This show is titled Confronting the Modern, suggesting that Rodin's modernism emerged out of a society that wasn't fully prepared to receive it. What defined the artistic conventions and attitudes of mid-19th century France as Rodin was coming of age? You would have had indeed sort of a, a classical and traditional approach to sculpting to figurative sculpting, abstraction didn't exist yet, uh, wasn't practiced yet, where indeed a figure would be very naturalistic and recognizable, would be properly proportioned, but sort of the expression and the meaning of a figure would be expressed by certain attributes 
and figures might be allegorical. So if you have a fi the figure of justice, she would be depicted with the scales of justice that we know, for instance. It is really the, the tradition that goes from Greek classical sculpture being picked up in the Renaissance through the 19th century, sort of a very classical and academic idea of the human figure. And Rodin early on worked very much in that tradition as well, but he very quickly did completely different and new things and uh, things that not everybody was happy with right away. Huh. Part of the experience of the highest exhibition is taking visitors along Rodin's rocky road to critical acclaim in the U.S. Why was his American debut controversial in the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition of 1893? Yes, Several of the works that were shown in the 1893 exhibition were quite erotic. That certainly sort of gave Rodin the kind of exposure, but also a certain notoriety and sort of public taste and also collector's taste for the most part was a little more traditional and a little, well, I don't want, want it to sound negative or judgmental, but we're for the most part not on board with sculpture that was as explicit as some of Baudin's works were. And yet at the same time, this mm, somewhat uh, succès de scandale, you might, might call it, did provide Baudin with exposure and his name became known and several enlightened patrons and collectors did become interested in his work and did immediately start collecting and uh, his work and championing him towards the, the public and the art world. So the controversy actually inspired some popularity and motivation among collectors. Yes, although it is also true that the early collectors did not necessarily buy those erotic works. But, you know, Baudin's work is so um, varied and so rich in different expressions and thematics that it's very easy to find something that an individual can be comfortable with. Hmm. Though today, Rodin is considered one of the giants of modern sculpture. It's only within the last 40-plus years that his work has been as highly regarded in America, especially after a Rodin revival took place in the 1980s. Claudia, what brought about the revival? I think it was a general shift in taste and attitude towards what modern art, you know, modern with a capital M, is supposed to mean and is supposed to do. So if you think about post-war art in general in the U.S., it really, artists really pushed against traditional academic understanding and sort of really wanted or deliberately were provocative and, and challenged all the expectations that 
had really been dominant um, in the history of art for, for quite a while. And, you know, critics at the same time also, they, they championed precisely this innovation and this breaking boundaries that we nowadays certainly still connect with the idea of contemporary art and the, the most relevant and challenging art these days. So I think it was in general this openness to something that broke away from tradition and challenged expectations. And so then when in the 1950s, curators and critics looked at Rodin, they in fact started looking precisely at this aspect in his work, not only the erotic, but, but also this attitude of destroying, as it were, the, the full human form, which had been sacrosanct for so long, and working with fragments and near abstraction and a greater emotional expression than before. So he suddenly, or at that time, more clearly fit the mold and the image of what a modern modernist, modern artist with a capital M is, uh, was supposed to be. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with curator Claudia Einecke. We're discussing the High Museum's upcoming exhibition, Rodin, the United States, Confronting the Modern. Does this exhibition make reference to Camille Claudel? Yes, uh, there is actually one work by uh, Claudel in the exhibition, and that is her famous portrait bust of Rodin. But she also enters the story at other points when you, for example, look at a famous work like The Kiss, which was created at the time that Rodin and Claudel were a couple, were lovers. And The Kiss is one of several quite erotic works or works that really explicitly deal with physical passion and relationships. Because there is sort of a cluster of those, we really think that it has a little bit to do with this passionate relationship between the two artists. So that it's it's a little bit, want to say, biographical but of course uh, sublimated and pushed in into the realm of art and into a timeless expression of passion and, and love, physical love. Thinking about the Rodin revival taking place in the 1980s, I remember the film from roughly 35 years ago with Juliette Binoche as Camille Claudel, and that in turn inspired reading and, and acquainting people with her role. Did she, in fact, have an important role as a sculptor within his studio? I have to admit, I'm not familiar exactly with her role in terms of the studio work, meaning hiring practitioners to transfer his sculpted models into bronze or into uh, marbles. I'm not sure how, whether she was involved in that, but she certainly 
developed her own art and did her her own work on and needs to be and fortunately eventually has been recognized as an important sculptor in her own right and in fact it was really Claudel herself who broke off the relationship with Rodin, I mean, the personal relationship with Rodin, because in part, certainly because she recognized that um, she would never emerge from his shadow if they stayed together. She had to make an official visible break for her own work to be recognized on its own merits. Hmm. The thinker, Rodin's iconic sculpture, appears in countless references across popular culture. It's 2,000 pounds of bronze and among the works displayed in this exhibition. Please tell us about the logistics of displaying this monumental work and others that are on such a grand scale. Yes, we will be having, you know, professional riggers take part in the installation and certainly heavy machinery and tools to manipulate it, to to move it around. But it begins with designing the, the platform and pedestal on which the thinker or the big Balzac or the big walking man uh, will be resting. So the pedestals have to be reinforced. Actually, some some of the pedestals that we have are reinforced with steel plates so that they can support the weight. And then with a thinker in particular, so you have one block pedestal on which the the figure itself rests, and that rests on the the floor, the, the pedestal rests on the floor. But it is surrounded by a low platform to make sure that no visitors get too close to it, can't touch, because that, of course, would be detrimental to the work. But the platform has to be actually constructed around that inner block, that pedestal, because otherwise we wouldn't be able to move the sculpture onto its pedestal because the machinery couldn't get close enough. This is a strange description that probably doesn't work. (laughs) No, I, I, I think what you are letting us know is some of the challenge regarding the engineering of just moving and placing such an enormous work in the show. Yes, because obviously big pieces, heavy pieces like this and smaller pieces are too heavy to move by hand as well. And in fact, these kind of engineering questions, logistical questions have to be solved early on. But fortunately, art handling is so far advanced and the equipment that is available that even moving these enormously heavy uh, pieces can be done very safely and with without any danger to the to the work itself. Hmm. In this show, we learned that the thinker was originally called the poet, a reference to Dante's epic poem, The Inferno. And actually, that was just one component of Rodin's larger work, The Gates of Hell, 
1880 commission surrounding a doorway. Would you help place the thinker in its context relating to Dante and perhaps clue us into who the thinker might have represented? You're right. The the gates of hell, which occupied Rodin for basically 30 years and were never completed to his satisfaction, the, the gates of hell is without doubt the most important work or aspect or element in Rodin's uh, later career because it really became the source and origin of many, many of his later later figures, later meaning after 1880, obviously. He was commissioned to make a, a sculpted portal for a museum of decorative arts, which was planned, but which never was built. And so he designed these huge double doors and they're encrusted, teeming with hundreds of different figures. And the theme of the whole composition was Dante's Inferno. So the figures relate to that epic poem. And one of the figures that was supposed to be sort of at the doorway was the thinker as we know of him today. And he was really supposed to represent the poet from whose imagination and creativity all the other figures on the doors basically were born. Then when Rodin gave up on finishing the doors, he took many of the figures from the doors and transformed them into freestanding individual figures. So the shade, which is on the doors, became a single figure. The thinker became a separate figure. Adam, Eve, lots and lots and lots of them, several of which are in in the exhibition as well. The thinker, I believe, quickly became for Rodin the personification of the creative genius in general. So not just the poet, but also the artist, including in many ways, the thinker has become very quickly also identified with Baudin's own genius. And, you know, you can, you can read into it or rather interpret it or get out of it different emotions. So on the one hand, you can say, yeah, it's the thoughtful creator, artist, but it's also at the same time because of the way the figure is turned inward, very easy to think of the figure as maybe being in mourning, which perhaps was part of why Rodin chose to have the thinker as his own tomb marker, as it were. Uh, you know, he and his wife are buried next to each other, and the tomb is overlooked by a figure by one cast of the thinker. So I think with with so many of Baudin's works, you can interpret the figures in different ways. You can set them into a traditional narrative, whether it's literary or religious, mythological, but uh, you can also see them as personifications simply of, not simply, but of emotions, of very strong emotions that are 
abstract or emotions that are not tied to a story, but that are really timeless and universal. High Museum of Art curator Claudia Einicke, the exhibition Rodin in the United States Confronting the Modern opens soon at the high. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is listener-funded 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with curator Claudia Einecke. We've been talking about the High Museum's upcoming exhibition, Rodin in the United States, Confronting the Modern. Here, Einicke discusses the influence of Michelangelo and other European sculptors on Rodin's work. I think there's no doubt that Michelangelo was, was really the most important influence on, on Rodin because Michelangelo also broke many rules of classical sculpture already in, in the Renaissance. And it's both on a conceptual level and on a formal level. I think on the conceptual level, what Rodin really, really was amazed by and, and influenced by was to see Michelangelo's unfinished sculptures. There are two famous marble sculptures of showing what we now call, well, generally called slaves. So they are marble, but they are not completely finished. The block has not been completely removed so that the, the figure is not complete yet. It's still sort of embedded in the marble. So the idea that a sculpture of a figure needs to be finished, standing by itself, the way you and I stand in space, that wasn't necessarily the end goal is something that Rodin took away from that. So that you see in many works, both in marble but also in other works in translated into bronze, where indeed the figure is still connected to, in the, in the case of marble, to the stone. So the, the block is still there and the figure is only half emerging. So the idea of finish, which Rodin then also translates into the, the bronzes, where a figure may not have arms and a head, and yet it's a complete sculpture, it's a complete figure for him. So the idea of, of what a sculpture, a full successful sculpture needs to look like really was greatly influenced by his experience of Michelangelo's work. Then also, I think on another level, you know, Michelangelo's work, if I may put it that way, is for the most part quite muscular and masculine. And I see the same, very same or even more so in Rodin's work. Um, his figures, so many are monumental, so many are indeed muscular with the exaggerated musculature that is expressive the way it was already in Michelangelo's work. That I think they have very similar spirits or they're related in spirit with each other. Rodin was commissioned in 1891 to sculpt a representation of 
the great French novelist Honoré de Balzac, but the piece he created was not well received. This is a part of the high exhibition as well. Would you describe it for us and help us understand these massive shifts in perception? Yes, you have to. Well, the figure of Balzac, it's a figure that is more than life-size. What you see of the man is a very craggy face with long hair and deep-set eyes and it's not very detailed. And the rest of the body is really, he's enveloped in a large cloak that really covers the rest of the body. So, so you basically have this craggy column with a very craggy and very expressive face. And to think of that as a portrait and as a monument was very, at the time, certainly went against what, what people expected. You know, when you hear the word portrait, you think, well, it is all about the likeness. You really are supposed to recognize the person. The shape of the face, the shape of the nose is supposed to be the way it really is on the figure. And, well, you know, you're, you're supposed to really have that kind of naturalism. And... Also, the figures are accompanied with their elements, with, with their attributes. So for, for a writer, you might see him seated at his desk or seated somewhere and holding a book or actually in the, in the act of writing so that you immediately recognize, even if you don't know the name of the person, you know, oh, that's a writer or, oh, that's a general because... He's carrying a sword and is wearing uniform that, that he used to wear. With the Balzac, it really is very, very different, even though he is supposed to represent Balzac. He doesn't look like Balzac. You would not recognize the face as Balzac. And there are no attributes. There's just this head on this column of uh, massive it doesn't even look like, like a body. So there is a greater sense of abstraction than you normally would expect and more than, than people at the time wanted to see in their monument celebrating Balzac. And I think that is a, is a very modern step to take again, that yes, the monument represents Balzac, but it really represents the creative genius in general. And, you know, the complete focus on just the head and everything else is falls away. But the head, the face is so expressive, has so much depth and sense of power, of intellectual power, that it really becomes something universal and timeless and uh, rather than just Balzac. <laughs> Along with 45 sculptures, the High Museum exhibition will also display 25 of Rotin's drawings. Claudia, what other aspects of his genius are revealed in Rodin's works on paper? I'm very excited that there are so many drawings shown in the exhibition as well because, you know, works on paper are not shown enough, I think, because we have to conserve them and, and protect them against light exposure. 
But for Rodin, drawing was really the same as sculpting. So we often think that, well, you have someone who's a sculptor and he makes drawings sort of to prepare in preparation for the figures that he is sculpting. And there certainly are drawings like that in the exhibition and Rodin certainly made them uh, to work out his ideas of composition and position and so on and so forth. But beyond that, he really looked at drawing as something that is parallel, that is the same kind of uh, process of creativity and thinking and expressing motion and emotion than he did in, in the sculptures. Some attribute Rotin's early popularity and later revival to the activities of collectors and critics in the fine art world. What is the significant role art collectors play in elevating the value of artists and works that might not otherwise have acquired such fame? Well, art that is created in the studio and stays in the studio and is never seen and talked about will not be seen and talked about. So museums are almost by nature kind of slower because, you know, we are thinking about what is right to conserve and preserve and present for the rest of the life of humanity. So the patrons early on, especially in any artist's development or career is extremely important. By now as well, the art market, the dealers and the, and the gallery system as well, because the patrons, whether they are collectors or gallerists, are the ones who provide exposure for work. With Rodin, it's very, very interesting because uh, or the, or the, the story in the US is interesting because of course, Rodin was already celebrated and recognized in Europe as one of the greatest sculptors of the 19th century. I'm talking about the time before the, the 20th century, when he also became recognized in the U.S. In a, in a new way. And it was indeed these early patrons and collectors, and interestingly, especially a group of uh, several women collectors and patrons who really were instrumental in bringing his work to the attention of the public by not only you know collecting and keeping them in their own houses but also bringing the work to the attention of curators and museums so that museums made their first acquisitions and exhibitions were presented and so on and so forth. But it really started with these very intrepid and very dedicated early private persons who supported, who, who loved Rodin's work, thought it was very important and um, really went to great lengths to make it known in the U.S. as well. Claudia Einecke curator of European art at Atlanta's High Museum. Rodin in the United States, Confronting the Modern, opens October 21st 
and will be on view through January of 2023. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the upcoming world premiere of At Queer Z from the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. The show is this Saturday evening, October 15th, at Georgia Tech's first Center for the Arts. If you missed part of today's show, like our earlier story about Thirst Trap, the new documentary that explores the issues surrounding Atlanta's water boys, you could catch up via our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.